And so James is a guy, though, that took a little bit of time, just a little while, uh, to uh, finally come around to believing that Jesus was who he said he was and that he would do exactly what he claimed to, that he would do. And I don't know if you've ever kind of given this any thought or not, but worshiping your own brother as Savior and Lord is, is something that is a hard pill to swallow for pretty much every single brother that's ever lived, Right? Um, it's not something that we come by honestly. It's not a natural progression of affections in most families, and may, unless maybe uh, you, your family was a lot different than mine. Um, so the obvious question is, well, how, how did James get there, right? How did James get to a point where he finally believed that Jesus was exactly who Jesus claimed to be? And the answer is that it took Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Right, that's just the simple answer. First uh, Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthian church about his own kind of post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. Uh, and he tells the church there that James got kind of a special, just for him, resurrection encounter with Jesus as Jesus was making the rounds. Uh, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we've said it before, resurrections uh, kind of have this gigantic effect on how people view the world and how pe- where people you know, leave and, and place their allegiances. And so post-resurrection, James is on team Jesus now. That's how that works. That's how that went down. But James is not simply someone who now identifies himself as a Christian. By the time that you get to the writing of this letter, James has moved from doubter of Jesus to leader in the church and willing to die for the truth of the gospel. That's, that's quite a shift, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a seismic shift. And so about 15 years or so, depending upon when you date this letter, but about 15 years or so after James wrote this, we know that James is finally martyred for his faith. He's put to death for it. The eternal truths of Jesus were not something that he just believed. They were something he literally wrapped his life around. So James was a guy who consistently put his money where his mouth was. He wasn't playing games with the gospel. He wasn't posturing and you know, into theatrics. He had fully and soberly counted the cost of following Jesus. And because of that, and James had lived through some stuff. James, James had experienced some ups and downs, even very real persecution. And so James writes this letter to an audience that's experiencing many of those very same things, dark days. At this point in, at this point in, in time, the church had kind of been scattered out from Jerusalem. They were beginning to settle in to these new places a little bit, but there was a lot of, a lot of reasons to consider walking away from the gospel, walking away from the faith. People had landed in a hundred different places geographically and culturally, and there were very real trials, and there were very real hardships, and on top of that, they could reasonably expect more and more trials to be coming down the pipe sometime soon. They, they, had, they had all kinds of history and all kinds of promise of dark days. But at the same time, God had been incredibly good to them. Incredibly good to them. Even while scattered out, the kingdom of God was continuing to grow. And so while this letter is going to eventually discuss several other practical things about the gospel as it moves forward, the letter opens up, it dedicates its first little section by discussing the very things that would have been just forefront on the minds of God's people in that season. Namely, how do we think about the trials that we're facing? Like, what do we do with them? How do we view them? How do we respond to them? 
And James's answer, James's answer actually runs in a diametrically opposite direction than every single thing that feels natural to us in our culture. He goes the entire other way. He says that for the Christian, trials should be accounted as something that produces joy in us. Produces joy. We live in a world that has no other option but to see trials as a catastrophic setback in, the, in, in our road to self-fulfilled happiness. Right? They can only ever be categorized as something that's standing in the way of our joy. Actively preventing the pursuit of our joy. And James tells his audience to categorize trials instead as something that actually creates joy. Creates joy. The, the, the thing that they want to chase after, the thing that they want to grab a hold more of, trials is actually what produces it. But that's not some power of positive thinking nonsense. James isn't calling his audience to manifest and materialize bad things into good things. That's not the game he's playing. He uses the word count for a very, very specific reason. It's a bookkeeping term. His call is for us to see trials correctly, which means label them exactly what they are and then assign them to the correct budget line in the ledger. He argues that because God uses those trials to produce steadfastness in, in his people and spiritual maturity in his people, good and eternal things that, that can't seem to be produced in the absence of trials. Uh, but because God uses trials to produce those good things, we can consciously and willingly call trials the fullness of all joy, to use uh, James's language, because they lead us into something eternally better than any life without those trials could ever produce. So we fleshed out several angles surrounding this issue over the last several weeks. I mean, who doesn't get excited about, you know, spending four dedicated weeks to talking about the darkest days of our lives? <laughs> last week, the angle we looked at was whether or not God is morally culpable, responsible, when the trials in our lives cause sin-shaped failure in us. That's the angle that we looked at. But James makes it clear, though, uh, in the previous verses, that it's our own sin-bent desires, the brokenness that already exists inside of us, that, that takes those moments, that takes those opportunities, and it runs with them into deeper and deeper sin. And that sin, whenever it's allowed to mature, well, it always produces the exact same outcome. Death. A broken world filled with death. But James says that those who instead remain steadfast under trials, a, a steadfastness that comes by the hand of the Lord, given to them by God, James says that they are rewarded with a victorious crown of life. And that's where we left things off last week. The option to go chasing after death by, uh, uh, by, uh, by leaning into our own brokenness or the option to go chasing after life by leaning into God's goodness and leaning into his care for us. Leaning into his provision for everything we need. Uh, but there's one more angle that, to this trials conversation that James needs to walk us through. All right? And so we get a fifth week on the subject, providentially so. So you ready to jump into it? We can set the tone by reading verse 16. James chapter 1, look at verse 16. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Let's call a time out there. All right, so... 
We have apparently now reached the point where James uh, is worried that his audience is in danger of being misled and misinformed about the nature of trials and how they relate to the character of God. That amidst all this talk about, about hardships and even about persecution, that we are at risk of believing some incorrect things about both God and our trials. And so James wants to make certain that we're defining things correctly and that we don't go down the wrong pathway here and that pathway that pathway would be to see these things these trials in a strictly utilitarian sense james says hang on now don't get this backwards then he calls his audience my beloved brothers that's a title that you're going to have to get very very used to in the book of james because um, he drops some version, variation of that title over and over again, some 15 times by my count uh, throughout this letter. We flew right past the very first instance back in verse 2. Sorry we didn't talk about it then, but like if, if we went digging into every possible thing we could dig into, this series would be 20 months long instead of 20 weeks long, so you're welcome. All right. But James goes out of his way several times over, uh, throughout this letter to, uh, to call his audience some version of brothers or my brothers or the very top of the mountain, my beloved brothers, right? Over and over again, he just drops this same term. But why? Well, what, well, I mean, why would that be something he would continually come back to? Well, I got a couple of ideas, a couple of reasons that I think make sense. For one, I think James understands the need to express endearment in his, in his tone. I think he understands that there's, there needs to be a, a, a little bit of love and grace within his rebuke at times. Uh, we talked about this a little bit back in week two of the series. James called himself a slave, right? Uh, yes, James is a leader in the church. Yes, James has a spiritual authority and a God-given responsibility to correct error and to say difficult things at times. But he is not at all coming after his audience with bared teeth. Or at least with some kind of club in this moment. He's not at all coming after them in any sort of way that would seek to flex his authority or assert his authority in a sinful way. I said back then that James would have to, would have to get on to some people a few times in this letter. And uh, it just so happens that of the 15 times that he calls his audience brothers, almost all of them are in the James is getting on to us moments. And so I think that James would have us keep his authority and his great love for them very closely attached here. They can't be opposed, separated out as different postures expressed in different moments. When, when James has to bear teeth, he does so because of his great love for them. Not in spite of. Because of his great love for them. But I think there's a second reason that James chooses to use this endearing term over and over again. I think, he, I think he repeatedly calls them brothers because he wants to shrink the perceived gap in them between leaders and laymen. Remember earlier when Jesus got on to his followers for wanting to be called rabbi? Same concept. It is all too easy to fall into a rut of believing that the spiritual maturity James calls his audience to are things that you know, all the normal people in the church would struggle to actually pull off. You got the leaders who you know, come by this stuff a little naturally, and you got everybody else. But that's not what James is calling them to. He's aiming them towards understanding that authentic faith 
always, and the word is always, fleshes itself out in a real world. It is seen and witnessed and expressed. It has discernible markers and it has a measurable process of growth. And so James repeatedly comes back to the grounding the, uh, their reality in the idea that God's people, they are a singular family. That leaders and laymen are both children of God in desperate need of the adoption of God. They have no other hope than to be called His. And in this specific case, that reminder sets the stage for James to correct their potentially false understanding of how their father is operating in verse 17. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. And it says this in 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So while his audience is at risk of wrongly believing that, that God is operating in some kind of utilitarian manner, that, that the trials in their lives are nothing more than some kind of necessary and calculated evil that they need to go ahead and put up with for a little bit to get to a better place. You know how that works? You do the thing. James says, hey, don't get this wrong because I'm worried you're about to get this wrong. Don't you, don't you forget now where every good and every perfect gift actually comes from. You ever sat down and uh, given time to thinking through the good things that, that God created? Or even better, you ever uh, tried to make a list of things that you were thankful that God decided to come up with and give to the world? I know that might not sound like a very productive moment to a lot of people, but this is one of those moments that I'm really, really thankful that God has forced me to be involved in children's ministry at times in my life. Because um, if you've ever been in a position to have to try to figure out how to teach massive truths about who God is to, in a way that little heads can kind of wrap their, their minds around and grab a hold of, man, it, it'll grow you in some things that other, you know, other things in your life just don't have the ability to grow you. Um, and kids are like, kids are special. <laughs> um, whenever I'm trying to teach kids uh, about the idea, the concept that God is the good creator, that I always do two things, always. I make a beeline as fast as I can to James 1.17, and I have all the kids sit down and make a list of things that they're glad God came up with. That's my game plan every time. You ever put me in charge of that? That's where I'm going. All right? And kids are really smart. They, they always start out with the answers they think you want to hear. I'm thankful that God made rocks and trees and mountains and sandy beaches and mommies and daddies and church families. Yeah, 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 me too, kid. Now, I'm thankful for those. Absolutely, I am. I'm absolutely thankful for those things, but the Bible also teaches that creativity is derivative. What does that mean? It means that whenever we're creative, the sinless parts of that creativity are just a shadow of his own good character. We're using his stuff in a way he's created it to be used. And in doing so, it magnifies his own good creativity. And so rocks and trees and mommies are really awesome. But there's also way more things that belong on that list. You want to know some of the things that I always put on my list whenever I sit down to make one? I got some things that I'm really thankful God made. Black coffee. <laughs> Creamer's an abomination, but black coffee is a good gift from the Lord. The color yellow, it's the best color. Any other color is the wrong choice. Mr. Good Bars, so simple. Chocolate and peanuts, how can you lose? Chicken fried steak, y'all. 
A good one will change your life. Saturday morning soccer games, curled up with the kids on the couch. The smell of Katie's shampoo. A perfectly tuned guitar. Not JB's. <laughs> Every Sunday as we're, as we're finishing the, the warm-up, I'm like, tune your guitar, dude. <laughs> Bugs me. Ray Lamontane songs. Woo! Boy can write a song. Starting a brand new book. Especially if that brand new book is on an airplane going somewhere I've never been. Ooh. It's a good moment for me. Harmony lines in old hymns. Something different about that tenor line with a song that was written 200 years ago. Four simple words floating through the air as a sign of hope each spring. Pitchers and catchers report. <laughs> Church, our God is good. Our God is good. You're either paying attention to his goodness or you're not paying attention to his goodness. And every time I interact with things on my list, and even as I consciously add new things to uh, the list that belong on my list, I am met with moments uh, when I interact with those things. I'm met with moments where I can choose to orbit my delight uh, in those things around myself, or I can choose instead to trace their origin and trace their goodness back to an infinitely better creator and giver of those good things. And grounding my delight in those good created things in Him instead, the goodness of those created things are actually amplified. They're made even more of, and they're given significantly deeper color and satisfaction in my heart. They've been designed and placed in creation for the purpose of exciting our hearts about Him as the Creator. Cool. I'll remember that the next time I teach a children's Bible lesson on God as the creator. Got it. What in the world does that have to do with trials, right? What is the reality of God being the unfathomably good giver of every perfect gift in this world have to do with all of those really terrible moments that have zero chance of ever making it on my list? I can think of some things this weekend that will never make it onto my list. James tells us. James tells us exactly why, what they, how they're connected. He says, our God doesn't change. Our God doesn't change. There's no variation in his character. There's no shadow of turning in him. Are you kidding me? God does not have a utilitarian nature in one moment and then a nature of blessing and giving good creative things in the next. That's not how he operates. There's no waffling back and forth in God between wanting to give good things to his people and then reluctantly having to give the necessary bad thing the next moment. That's not who our God is. Remember back in the day when children's cough medicine tasted like garbage? Maybe you don't know. It's a lot better now. Um, those of you who haven't had kids in your house for a while, um, they've, they've made some improvements, all right? Um, there's a big part of me, like a really, really, really big part of me, that's a little sad and frustrated that my kids will never have to experience what artificial cherry used to taste like. <laughs> have to find a different way to produce that kind of character in them. <laughs> the trials in your life, they are not, hear me, they are not, are not some just hurry up and get it over with medicine kind of moment. That's not what God is doing. 
They are not some bad but necessary for your improvement, so just dig deeper and get it over with kind of reality. No, see, according to James, they are a part of the list of incredibly, unfathomably good things that God has seen fit to surround you with. It doesn't change. He's not waffling. Your trials, yes, even your trials are gifts to you for your good, meant to be traced back to the good giver. So if you want an imperfect illustration, they're more like Brussels sprouts than old-fashioned cough medicine. Growing up, I hated Brussels sprouts. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. We all have stories where we grew up and our taste buds matured and gained nuance, and now we like things that we used to not like. No. That's not this story at all. Now, see, the reason why I hated Brussels sprouts when I was a kid, because there was exactly one way to make Brussels sprouts in my house growing up. Maybe you make them like this. You take a casserole dish with a glass lid. You put the Brussels sprouts in there. You put a little bit of water in there. You shut the lid. You put them in the microwave and boil them slash steam them slash nuke the life out of them for 15 minutes. And you pull them back out and you're supposed to be happy about it. Find me someone who actually likes to eat Brussels sprouts that way and I will point you to someone who needs to be committed to an insane asylum. Yes, Brussels sprouts are good for you. Absolutely. Yes, there are things in this world that we need to eat because they are good for us, because they are healthy. But that's also treating Brussels sprouts like cough medicine. Do it because you gotta. Wasn't until I was in my 30s that I learned you could roast those suckers. (laughs) Drizzle some olive oil on there, spread some salty, garlicky seasoning on there, and put the fire to them. Forever changes the way you do Brussels sprouts. Suddenly, Brussels sprouts are both good for me and enjoyable in their own unique way. Are they ice cream? No. Are they steak? No, but they go really well with steak. It's an imperfect illustration, to be sure. It breaks down on so many angles, but there, there's a way of handling your trials and, and the trials in your life that treats them like the microwave is your only option. Stick them in there, nuke the life out of them, Suck them back. There's also a way of handling your trials that, that thinks that God intends them for your good. And so I better trace their origin back to Him and look for His design and look for His goodness in them and look for His creativity and look for His character. There's a way of handling the trials in your life that trusts that God's character is good and goes looking for how he has intended them with beauty and depth and goodness of life within that trial. Which raises a question, I think. What happens when we're in the middle of the darkest trial and we have no idea at all where the goodness of God can be seen in that moment? I mean, haven't we all been there? Like, there's some, there's some junk in our lives that we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But God, God showed me this, and God pulled me there. There's some other trials in your life where all, all you've got in you is why. Where are you? Why would you allow this? 
We just left to assume that somewhere along the way, steadfastness and maturity are going to show up somewhere. And so just grit and hang on. Is that, is that the only place our hope can be found in those moments? James is already positioned to answer that question for us in verse 18. He says this, Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, so what, did, what did James just say? And it's in a very poetic way, he just said that those who belong to God, belong to him because we are called to himself. He has brought us home. He has brought us to his, his presence. It says, by his will, he brought them forth by the word of truth. That out of all the things that God has seen fit to create and bless the world with, his people, his people, those who have received salvation through the finished work of Jesus on the cross on their behalf, out of all the things that God has seen fit to bless the world with, to create and hand off as the goodness of who he is, his people are his greatest prize. He loves them. And delights in them the first fruits of his creatures. He's proudest of them. What do we do when we're in the middle of the darkest trials and we can't seem to find the good thing that God intends for us within it? What we do in that moment, the answer is that we rest in the fact that the giver of every good and every perfect gift this world has ever seen sees us as one of his good gifts. He's not far away. He's not far away. He's not not some far away God doling out blessing and curse in some arbitrary manner. That's not what he's doing. No, he's the God who calls us to himself. And he makes himself near to us. And he promises to never leave or forsake us. For those who belong to him, we are his and he is our God. And maybe, listen, maybe you're going to have to wait for a long, long time before steadfastness and maturity finally come in the middle of the trial. But listen, you will not be waiting alone. You're not by yourself in that wait. Because in addition to coffee and Mr. Goodbars and glorious spring training announcements, he also delights to give us himself. He's good like that. And when we get him, and and trials just seem a whole lot less worthy of our attention in those moments. It doesn't make them any less trial-y. It doesn't make them something that we no longer have to deal with, but they can't dominate our attention like they used to because he's better. He's better. So what do we do with this, right? I mean, James has just reframed the conversation around trials yet again. So how how can we respond? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And man, this week, I I think he's showing us that he has far more control over the circumstances of our lives than we're usually paying attention to. My kids notice pretty much all of the moments when I withhold something they really want. And I guarantee you, they notice all the moments when I actively take something away that they want. You know what my kids have never done? Sit down and made a list of the million moments in between those where I've just lavished blessing upon them. 
Your kids any better than mine? We treat God the same way. We really do. I, I, I know I do. Maybe it would be spiritually healthy for you this week to sit down and make a list. I, I don't know. And that's a good thing for your heart. If for no other reason but to cause you to spend a moment delighting in Him as Him for just a moment. But listen, if it also manages to change the equation in your head for the balance between creative gift and trial that He's doling out, then that's a pretty big win too, right? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't get this wrong, because I'm worried you're about to get this wrong. Do not forget, don't you ever forget where every good and perfect gift actually comes from. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. We, we set that time aside specifically for the purpose of giving you an unhurried moment. Uh, space to process this instead of rushing out into something else. So maybe your response this morning needs to come in the form of resting in and recounting the endless good things that he has seen fit to give you. And then it needs to rest in and recount the surpassing goodness that he has seen fit to let himself be known by you. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down here if you want to talk. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? How can you respond? The answer is simple. We would love for you to meet Jesus. We want you to know him. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of our sin. We reject him as king and lord over us and we assert ourselves as lords over our own lives. That rejection, it trickles down, man, into how you view and use the good things that he's seen fit to give to the world. Money, food, technology, our bodies, authority, it all gets twisted. It all gets used in self-serving ways, every ounce of it. And because of that core level rejection of God and his authority, a rejection that begins in our own hearts and then flows out into everything else, the Bible teaches that we are owed the righteous and just punishment for that sin. Death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy. That he loves us with a great love. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive through Christ by his grace. God sent his son. Jesus, you want to talk about top shelf gifts? There's a top shelf gift. God the Son put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a Roman cross as a propitiation, we say, as a payment for your sin, to cover the debt of your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now, as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. He calls you to himself by the word of truth to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. I'd love to be helpful. Again, let's talk. You can respond to Jesus. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while now, but you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized. And today is a good day to rectify that. Take steps of making that right. Or maybe you've been hanging out here for a while and you believe that God is calling you to, to make National Baptist Church your, your church home, your church family, and today's a really, really, really good day to finally go, yeah, I'm in. Or maybe you felt God call you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here. It's time to publicly say yes to that call. Man, I'd, I'd love to help you take good, faithful steps in that.
help you figure out what those steps look like. But whoever you are, however, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for your sovereign control over our calendar, so we're still talking about trials today. Even on the dark day, this is the day the Lord has made. Help us rejoice when we don't want to. Help us be glad in it when it seems impossible to try. God, help us see your character in every good gift, even the ones that don't necessarily make our list of things we're thankful for. Create a thankfulness in us that traces its trust back to you, traces our delight back to you, traces our enjoyment and satisfaction back to you. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Call people to yourself by the word of truth this morning. Forever change their eternity by it. Open eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a, uh, it's a bittersweet week for us. You know, Jim uh, knew the same truth that James was pointing to. And if you talk to Jim, you know, he would, he would always point you to that truth, that Jesus was his, his rock, his foundation. And he would just talk for hours about how good Jesus is. And Jim could talk for hours. <laughs> um, so while it's a sad day for us uh, because we lose, Pat loses a husband, we lose a friend. Um, but man, it's the best day for Jim. It's the best day for Jim. And I can't imagine going through life not having that hope uh, that Jim had. And, uh, and James, as Stephen taught us today, yeah, bad things happen in life and bad days come. But the better day is coming. We have a Savior who has overcome the world and gives us trials to point us back to his goodness. Um, so let's stand again and respond and uh, sing on Cornerstone together.